Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. I think most of us think we implicitly understand what is meant when we talk about simulation. Many might point to the simulators used to train pilots who can safely learn how to fly a specific plane or practice certain operations which might be life or death if performed in the air. Healthcare is no stranger to the use of simulations either, and there are thousands of examples of what might be included in this list. The growth and use of simulation in healthcare remains a tremendous opportunity to improve all aspects of the triple or quadruple aim and certainly to reduce costs, improve quality and safety, and outcomes in general. And while that could be our conversation today, instead, I want to explore the role that simulation can and does play in all things related to our critically important health human resources. To discuss this, I'm joined by Dr. Tim Willett, President and CEO of Simulation Canada. Tim has been working at the intersection of healthcare education, technology, and leadership since 2005. He is passionate about the transformational and overdue value simulation is bringing to the healthcare education and delivery sectors. As president and CEO, Tim is responsible for leadership and the day-to-day operations of Simulation Canada. He is honored to be part of the small but mighty team and the network's passionate nationwide community. Tim received his MD from the University of Ottawa and a Master's of Medical Education from the University of Dundee in Scotland. He has served as a curriculum developer and educational researcher for the University of Ottawa, the CRI Critical Care Educational Network, and the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. He has served on the Executive Committee and as co-chair of the Competency Working Group of the Medbicutus Consortium. Hi, Tim, and welcome to the HQ. Good afternoon, Dale, and thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I've really been looking forward to this conversation for some time. So um, yeah, let's just jump into it. So uh, perhaps we could start the conversation today by ensuring everyone listening has the same appreciation of what is simulation is um, and what value it does bring to healthcare. Yeah, that's a good that's a good place to start because um, everyone has a different idea in in their head. When you say simulation, and many may think of the mannequins that have pulses and that you mm-hmm. can intubate and um, uh, and that are used for for replicating high acuity medical situations, and and that's part of simulation, but certainly not the extent of it. So we define simulation as a replication of some aspect of reality for the sake of education or quality improvement. So really, it's a technique we're trying to imitate some part. Uh, not necessarily all parts of a real clinical situation, mm-hmm. and then applying it for uh, either educational purposes or quality improvement or patient safety purposes. So um, we we in the field talk about modalities, uh, which is the way the technologies or techniques you use to create that simulation. In some uh-huh. cases, yes, uh, we do use the mannequins that have the physiology, right? Um, but it spans a gamut from having actors who are trained to play people or patients um, in a certain situation, to uh, virtual reality, to computer-based or screen-based simulations uh, and serious gaming, um, and a lot of other emerging technologies that um, enable us to to recreate some clinical situation. Fascinating. So I'm sure you're going to bring up some more of those examples as we continue the conversation here. So um, 
You know, so I, I dare say that as we enter 2023, there are a few people in Canada that don't know we are in a health human resource crisis uh, that is growing increasingly dire every day. Um, but for certain professions, the call is simply to create more seats in our medical schools, open up more positions for nursing students, as an example. And then others are quick to respond and remind is that we just don't have enough spaces for those students um, in our healthcare institutions. So, I mean, what is your take on this, um, the role that simulation can play sort of in helping us, I guess, in terms of our recruitment and development of uh, new health professionals um, and helping us out of this crisis? Yeah. Uh, and Dale, that's something I'm hearing from our members who are colleges and universities and hospitals across Canada too, is, is this being stuck between a rock and a hard place mm -hmm. where sometimes there's certainly pressure to increase or maintain enrollment of healthcare professionals. In some cases, there's even funding from government, um, but there's not the clinical space to take on more students in, in, in many clinical settings. And that becomes the bottleneck. There's growing evidence, and at this point, fairly solid evidence that simulation, uh, no doubt, is a strong uh, pedagogical method and accelerates learning faster than most traditional educational techniques. Um, there's additional evidence that simulation can help learners achieve levels of competencies we need of them uh, at the time that they graduate um, by creating hybrid curriculas where some of the clinical training is done in simulation and some of the clinical training is done uh, in the hospital or other healthcare setting. So the conversation in simulation circles now is how do we optimize the limited clinical placement time we have and everything we know about simulation in order to create the best combination of of clinical learning, simulation-based and placement-based clinical learning um, to optimize the educational outcomes of our, of our students. And so we're seeing things like simulation being used to prepare students for their clinical placements, um, for them to learn some of the, the routine uh, practices um, and day-to-day -day activities that they'll be doing in the clinical placement so that they're ready to go. Uh, when they get into, uh, I'll say hospital for argument's sake, but recognizing mm -hmm. this might be a community placement or long-term care. Sure. Um, but they've got some of those, those foundational um, uh, skills that they'll be using. And then in the clinical setting, the focus isn't so much on learning a particular skill uh, or seeing a particular condition for the first time, but rather understanding it in context and learning how healthcare teams work, learning how healthcare systems work. Um, but some of that foundational knowledge, the foundational problem solving, the, the psychomotor skills can all be developed quite effectively and quite and, and completely safely in a, in a simulated environment. We're also seeing hospitals use simulation um, to make sure students get certain experiences. So as I'm sure you can appreciate, if you're a, a nursing student going through your emergency rotation, um, you may or may not see a trauma, depending on which emergency room you're in and what happens on the shifts that you're there. One may come in on door, one may not. And if it doesn't, then you've missed the opportunity to try to learn how um, 
uh, a trauma team responds when when a trauma comes through the door or mm -hmm. any other uh, you know medical uh, emergency you can imagine so by creating a standard simulation curriculum we can make sure that students are exposed to certain um, conditions or certain situations that we want to ensure that they uh, have worked through by the end of their, their their training. Yeah, you don't want to wish for a gunshot wound so you can practice, right? No. But but you certainly want those people prepared for that when it's going to arrive. Um, so, I mean, are there other advantages, um, you know, in use of simulation um, compared to you know, a more, I guess, traditional way of observing, watching and, and practicing. Um, you know, I'm just sort of thinking, you know, there may be detractors out there that would say, but it's simulation, it's not as good as it or it's, you know, it, it, um, it takes away that the reality and therefore does it, you know, it's, it would, it's, it's less than, uh, you know, the quality education they might receive otherwise. So, uh... In simulation, nobody is advocating that simulation completely re replace clinical placement because nothing can recreate the real complex social um, environmental uh, milieu of, of actually working in, in a hospital. Um, what we want to do is expedite learning so that um, we can make as, as efficient use of that time in the hospital as possible. Um, so if you take um, you know, a, a, a basic skill, let's talk about inserting a central line, for example, mm -hmm. which is something that happens regularly in, in acute hospital settings. When I went through medical school, it was see one, do one, teach one. Uh, I think when I went through medical school, I didn't even have the opportunity to see one before I was asked to do one uh, under supervision. This was not uh, an ethical practice. This was not a safe situation for uh, the patient. The procedure went well, everything was fine, uh, but this is this was not a good educational uh, paradigm. Mm -hmm. So now what we can ask of students is to see one, to simulate one. If it didn't, if they need more refinement of their skills, simulate another, simulate another until you achieve a certain level of comfort and a certain level of skill, mm -hmm. and then transfer that learning to the, um, to the bedside. And indeed, there's tremendous evidence now that the learning in simulation does transfer to the clinical setting, that it does reduce, reduce the stress load and allow learners to focus more on um, uh, the quality of the task that they're doing, rather than having to think about what they're doing. And in some cases, and, and the reason I chose central line is it's a perfect example that um, there's strong evidence that uh, clinicians who are trained on simulation and achieve a certain level of competency in simulation have lower levels of bloodstream infections and lower level of, of sepsis resulting from the procedure itself. So there's even growing evidence that simulation-based training can translate into improved patient outcomes, reducing adverse effects, and even reducing cost of hospital stays. Yeah, that's that's huge. Um, so coming back to the, the question, I guess, about creating more space for graduates um, or, you know, uh, uh, people doing residencies or things like that, I guess, right? In terms of the use of simulation, so did, are you, I guess, uh, to make sure I could 
I, I'm capturing it because I don't think you said it explicitly, but it can reduce the length of time for some of those things as well in terms of the burden so that we, um, the use of simulation could improve the number of spaces in our institutions um, for um, people to do their clinical practicums or residencies or things like that, or is, yes. I guess, is that the suggestion? Or Yeah, it is. And there's there's been multi-site <clears throat> studies showing that this can be safely done. Uh, and there's schools across North America, including some in, in Canada that are already doing that. So they're reducing the number of hours that their students spend in clinical placement uh, and increasing the number of time, amount of time they spend in simulation instead. And just roughly, like, is it reducing things like by 10%, 5%? Do you have a, a sense or? It, it varies. And yeah. um, at this point, it, it, it's a bit of an art and a, a science. Yeah. In some cases, that's up to 50%. So some of the studies that have been done have taken what would be, for argument's sake, a 40-hour clinical placement and reduced it to 20 and shifted the other 20 hours into, um, into the simulation lab. Right. So that's almost doubling the number of seats then. In, theoretically, yeah. yeah, yeah. The the challenge, um, or or the, maybe it's not a, a challenge so much as the um, the requirement from the simulation perspective of a course is, of course, that the simulations be well done. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, simulation as an educational technique, as you pointed out, starting in in aviation decades ago, um, becoming much more popular in, in healthcare around. The turn of the century um, has a very strong um, uh, body of, of best practices. So we know what kind of techniques, what kind of training for educators, or as we call them, simulationists, is needed. Um, what kind of work needs to go into creating a simulation scenario, preparing your learners for it, and debriefing your learners after, in order to make it a safe and effective learning uh, opportunity. So that's really the challenge from the simulation perspective is uh, is now ensuring that quality um, so that students really are prepared when they go into the clinical setting. Sure. So I'm assuming you can get to that. I guess that what I'd also then be hearing from you is that it also creates an opportunity for almost a standardized approach to some of that teaching as well. Um, right, so to make sure that every student is necessarily getting the same exposure, the same procedures, the same uh, um, right, the, the same opportunities to practice, or things like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and it's one of the great benefits is yes, you could have that standardized curriculum, but it can also be individualized. Yeah. Um, and a learner who needs a few more tries on a simulator in order to get something can do that. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, a, a learner who needs uh, a bit more practice seeing undifferentiated presentations of chest pain in order to refine how they work up chest pain and, and come to a diagnosis from this, this nebulous presentation can practice some more cases and work on their, their clinical reasoning skills. So cool. it, 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 uh, it can be both standardized and allow for more individualized educational experiences. Oh, it's the, the perfect sort of, you know, uh, recipe, I think, for for individualized learning and, and giving people the best opportunity to be the best that they can be. Um, 
So, I mean, based on what you've shared, certainly we can improve the supply of our health professionals by leveraging simulation. Um, what about getting these new hires ready to say into new organizational roles and things like that and, and onboarding, um, you know, that part of the process, mm -hmm. Does simulation play a role in that next stage of their development. Definitely. And, and I see more and more hospitals uh, across Canada starting to use simulation as part of the, the onboarding or ongoing um, professional development of their, of their staff. Um, so we know that transition from school into practice is a, a challenging point in anyone's career development um, because there are certain things about about being the one responsible, about being the one in practice, uh, and about practicing in a certain setting, right? In a certain hospital that has its own culture, that has its own workflows, that has its own electronic medical systems. Um, and there's a learning curve to that, as well as a confidence building curve. So uh, we see simulation um, in several hospitals. I, I know of across Canada, it's it's being built into that onboarding process. Uh, again, there was one study that, that comes to mind out of the US where mm -hmm. they compared their traditional onboarding process, which involved a series of lectures and then buddy shifts mm -hmm. to uh, a more simulation-based uh, curriculum. And what they found is that the number of buddy shifts that new hires needed to transition into the, the workplace was cut down so much uh, that it was markedly cheaper to run the simulation community than it was to pay uh, staff for uh, all the buddy shifts that mm -hmm. that would be otherwise needed. So it was actually, you know, um, not only safer for patients, but uh, economically, it made more sense to to use the simulation based onboarding program. So building more independence in those people is is that sort of the I guess the outcome of that. Yeah, yeah, and and using the simulations to help them uh, learn hospital processes and workflows and policies and procedures, um, so that they don't need as much time on the the body shifts to feel um, to feel the confidence that they need to to yeah. begin independent practice, but also to know those processes. So, so building on that, I guess it just thinking about the like what the the person. Um, experiencing the simulation right or acting uh, i'm not sure what the right word is but the actor i guess it i'm not i guess i don't want to use that word because that suggests the actors are the sim simulations but the person who's going through this process um what is you know it says it builds more confidence and things like that but how do they in other situations um respond to getting a simulated um, experience versus um, a non-simulated, right, a more real um, experience. I mean, I know I was asking you about, you know, the more general perception of that at the, at the earlier, but from from the individual's perspective, what does it change in terms of their uh, perceptions or outcomes? I guess. So I think it's important to remember that the the generation graduating from health professional training now is used to simulation. It's. Mm -hmm. It is a standard part of um, most health professions uh, training programs now. So they're entering the workforce used to learning through simulation. And um, you know, when one starts in 
learning and you know in simulation as a as a learner it is intimidating because you're being asked to do things in um a somewhat not perfectly ever but but somewhat realistically environment and act as if you're a professional and it's it's a position of vulnerability because you know there's opportunities for you to make mistakes you know you're being observed so we work hard to create a culture of of safety uh, and learning in the simulation space. And once students get used to that way of learning, they're quite accustomed to it. So transferring it and continuing that simulation-based learning in, in a continuing professional development um, would almost be an expectation, uh, I think, of, of most people coming out of uh, training programs these days. Um, for those who you know, are used to it, have uh, know, are comfortable with this learning modality too. Uh, like I said, what we what we see reported time and time again is that the simulations allow them to feel more confident uh, and more comfortable and reduce their stress levels when they do make that transition into the the clinical environment or with, when they do begin that um, independent practice. Hmm. So. A lot of the examples that you've given to this point in time, I think, you know, inserting a central line or even some, you know, uh, you know, adherence to policies and procedures and things like that. I mean, they're step-by-step -step things. They're technical or clinical by their nature. Um, and certainly I can see, you know, with the right investments, right, creating simulations for those, you know, um, makes, it's easy for us to understand and perhaps relate to. Um, what about those other parts that are perhaps a little bit more unpredictable, like the interactions with people, the social skills, soft skills, as we might describe them? Um, you know, are, does simulation play a role in, in helping those parts of our development? Yeah, definitely. Ab absolutely. Um, you're right that we it, historically in simulation focused a little more on the technical skills. Um, and increasingly, we see some incredible educational work being done uh, when it comes to interpersonal skills, collaboration, communication, um, teamwork during a crisis and situ situational awareness and, and managing a, a team during a crisis, um, in improving patient-centered care, in, um, and uh, you know, you know, most recently as uh, our, our healthcare professionals shift towards um, uh, a greater emphasis on trauma-informed uh, approaches, on patient-centered care, um, on uh, anti-racism and anti-discrimination, culturally safe care. We see simulations being used to, um, to help people use the right language uh, in the right way, use the right body language um, to make sure that, that healthcare experiences are, are effective and, and positive and safe for a whole diversity of, of healthcare system users. Hmm. Uh, really interesting. So, I mean, are they role-playing or um, how, I guess, how does the simulation play out for something like that? Yeah. Um, at the kind of more basic end, uh, one major national project we're involved in right now involves creating virtual or screen-based simulations, where which are um, uh, almost like serious games that, that, that learners can can access on a computer. Mm -hmm. Some of those are being built from a communication or relationship building perspective and, and learners have to, to choose what they're going to say and how they're going to phrase it in order to build a relationship with the, 
with a patient or, or manage uh, a conflict with a, with a colleague. So that's maybe on the more basic introductory end. And then on the, on the more sophisticated end, um, you would use uh, standardized patients or what's called simulation participants. And these are professional actors who are trained to play um, people in a certain role. So I've, mm -hmm. I've been involved in, in training around end of life where uh, practitioners have had have worked with uh, worked with these trained actors um, to work through processes of uh, you know breaking bad news and and talking about very difficult end of life decision making uh, in in the intensive care unit with uh, uh, with patients or uh, and families are, are navigating situations um, hypothetical situations where there's a family and um, some people in the family believe it's time to stop intensive treatment um, and that everything that can be done has been done and let nature take its course. And others in the family adamantly believe that um, everything that can be done should continue to be done no matter how invasive. And those are incredibly difficult social situations, but we can, with very strong actors, we can recreate these and help um, uh, and help practitioners learn how to navigate um, situations like that. Would it allow them to sort of, um, I guess, from a different scenario-based sort of approach, allow them to see different kinds of outcomes? Like how to, how to arrive at a different conclusion or how, um, you know, your, your choices might um, reduce, I, I guess, yeah, to lead to different outcomes or, or behaviors, and maybe both maybe desirable. Um, but how do you practice, I guess, getting to a certain place or? Yeah, yeah, how to practice getting to a certain place, but also recognizing um, our internal biases, and what can, what could turn into or feel like a conflict mm -hmm. with a colleague or with a family, rather, uh, rather than and allowing it to become you know a, a, an intractable or or you know even a, a escalated but resolvable conflict reframing it and focusing on on um, empathy and relationship building and guiding people through a difficult uh, like difficult time or difficult process so yeah we can see those changes in um, in self-regulation and those changes in, in behavior through practice. Yeah, I mean, like things like empathy, um, like it's such a, you know, so critically important um, and such a hard one to sort of put your finger on. Right? It comes up in so many parts of, I guess, our um, our competency building sort of, I guess, roadmap. I mean, it comes up in like leadership development as an example, right? And how do you build empathy and, and that kind of capacity for, um, you know, feeling, um, right with others uh you know as, as something that we want to develop but then how do you do that so i mean is it do you see this again not only and i guess on that clinical side of things where it's obviously really important in terms of the relationship with the patients or residents um but also um i guess in that it more administrative and um part of our healthcare operations as well oh i i think so um the, the the leadership building example you bring up is is great and and the incredible number of interpersonal skills needed from from strong leaders is a is a great example of opportunities for simulation um 
on the more technical side of the administrative context, we also see things like tabletop simulations where there might be interagency simulations. Um, you know, a great example is, remember a few years ago, there was the, um, the mass shooting in Toronto mm -hmm. and um, the, the victims were all brought to, to Sunnybrook. Well, it turns out that just a couple of months before that, Sunnybrook had gone through an institutional mass trauma simulation where they worked out how would each of the different hospital units change their priorities and adapt in order to accept an inflow of, um, uh, of highly acute um, trauma cases. And because they'd been through that process, we heard from them just how smooth it was when it actually happened. Um, so you're absolutely right that there, there are opportunities for those interpersonal um, skills to, to simulate them for, for leadership, but there's, and there's also opportunities to simulate um, and help make decisions about some of the um, hospital workflow and, and capacity building or capacity management type of, of work as well, and interagency simulations amongst hospitals and uh, uh, emergency medical services um, and other community-based services as well. Hmm. Interesting. So I, I guess I'm also wondering, I mean, I appreciate it's maybe more emerging. And so, I'd, um, you know, you may not have examples to sort of to bring to this, but um, with the growth of AI, um, right, in, in our world as a large, right, is that figuring more or differently, I guess, in terms of how simulations are being developed? Or what would your perspective on where that future may take us? Yeah, yeah, that's a cool question. So the two perspectives here. One is how do we train our healthcare providers to work with AI and mm -hmm. understand the strengths and limitations of what AI can bring to their, their practice? Um, so we see that happening in pathology. We see that happening in diagnostic imaging where um, the adoption of AI and the use of AI um, for you know, pattern recognition in samples and in imaging is starting to be become part of practice. Right. Um, we see it uh, to some degree in um, helping clinicians learn how to work with clinical dis uh, clinical decision support systems. Mm -hmm. uh, again, understanding not just how to use it, but also its strength and its limitations, so that um, clinicians can understand or or flag when there could be uh, an an error uh, or a problem with the the, the system. The other perspective is AI in simulation. Uh, and mm -hmm. indeed, there are simulation platforms that are beginning to use uh, artificial intelligence and natural language processing. Um, one platform comes to mind. It's a, it's a screen-based platform that allows you to meet patients, meet virtual patients, and speak to them. Hmm. So um, you're met. You could be in an office situation, in a hospital situation. I've seen one that takes place on a playground to, to train um, paramedics. Uh, but walking into an undifferentiated situation where you have to, just like in real life, you have to decide what questions you're going to ask and work your way from broader questions to try to understand what's happening to more specific questions to, to come to a, a diagnosis or come to 
um, an understanding of, of the specific problem so you can respond to it appropriately. So now there's these AI powered virtual um, virtual patients who you can uh, you can meet and ask anything you want and they're programmed to give you appropriate responses and help you work through that clinical reasoning process. Yeah, it's, it, the unpredictability, I guess, parts of that, I mean, that you can can bring to that. It's the, you know, the, the stories that we read as a kid, right? Make your own ending, right? Follow this and that's going to lead to this and, and things like that. It, that would be like, you know, a million fold more, more powerful, I guess, in terms of what you're describing. And, and, and more complicated too. So those, those kind of choose your own adventure type of simulations are also very powerful, but they also cue, right? You, you get a yeah. situation and you're given a list, little list of answers, which of these five things would you do next or say next? Yeah. So there's an element of cueing. As learners get more advanced, you want to expose them to simulations that are more like reality where someone comes into your emergency room with chest pain, you have to decide what's next. Yeah. Wow. Very interesting. So um, I guess one of the other um, priority concerns that's being raised during, I guess, our health human resource crisis is that of the mental health of our current workforce itself, mm -hmm. um, right? I mean, with moral distress and burnout and, and the challenges that are being faced by clinicians and, and other professionals alike, um, I mean, are there examples or evidence about how we can use simulation to help in this area as well? I, I believe so. I, I will say this is more emerging mm -hmm. uh, than, than established practice. I, I hear of people using simulation-based approaches to, to help alleviate some of these issues uh, and some of these challenges and help support their, their colleagues. Um, I know of simulation-based initiatives to try to improve resilience yeah. uh, and help um, reduce mental health impacts that way through deliberate deliberately addressing um, the qualities of grit and, and, and resilience. Um, I don't I don't know um, the outcomes. I don't know the state of the research on that specifically. Mm -hmm. I'll admit. Um, but I know efforts are, are being made. Another perspective too is is I think to realize that issues of, of burnout aren't solely related to um, to workload and and you know the, those quantifiable number of hours worked or number of patients you have have to care for certainly that that's part of it um, but an important part is also the the sense of feeling supported and, and feeling um, confident in in what you're doing and there's uh, some evidence and it this came from residency education, a paper I saw recently um, looking at um, the mental health impacts of reducing um, work hours, kind of crudely just reducing work hours yeah. versus reductions in work hours, lesser reductions in work hours, but improving the amount of educational support and in this case, it was um, it included simulation-based education, and adding 
those supports, um, including things like simulation, to help the team feel both feel more supported from the educational perspective and feel more confident in what they're doing um, helped and, and had a bigger impact on, on mental health than just the, the, the work hour reductions alone. Um, there's been other studies in, in Canada um, looking at, uh, again, onboarding and regular uh, professional development and simulation in the ICU and retention of nurses hmm. that found that nurses that were onboarded and had access to ongoing um, professional development through simulation were more likely uh, to stay in an ICU career longer. Um, so we do actually see some, some outcomes that go as far as, um, uh, as re retention and um, uh, mental health in the, in the workplace. Yeah. Well, I think, in, you know, engagement of, you know, and giving people chances to learn, I think is, is certainly identified as an important part of, um, yeah, overall retention and, um, and yeah, in, engaging them in right their their career. And yeah, so I, I can, it definitely makes sense to me, I guess. And, and another perspective on this too, we've been talking a lot about simulations for educational purposes. Another whole approach to simulation is for system improvement mm -hmm. purposes, where you can run simulations with a clinical team. And when you run the debriefing, the debriefing isn't about how could we as providers do better, but rather it's about how could the system in which we work be better structured to support our, our, our work and enable us to, do, to achieve the best possible outcome. So that's where discussions about changes to policies or procedures or changes to a certain piece of equipment or where equipment is stored or a certain workflow or um, access to a certain thing or um, the physical layout of a, of a room yeah. can, um, uh, can come to light and improvements can be made in, in, uh, in, in that system and in the structure and in the space. As a, a secondary benefit of that kind of simulation is that the care teams involved in those simulations now have direct input into their workplace. Mm -hmm. And it, it provides an, an avenue for management to learn from the lived frontline experience of, of healthcare providers and empowers healthcare providers to improve the system in which they're working. So that can be another very powerful way to um, to build that sense of, of collaboration in a, uh, in a care setting, uh, and to empower providers. Yeah. Well, I think it, and it's, it's timely. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's apropos of conversations that are happening right now, right. About the, the calls for, um, you know, not just improvements to our system, um, right. Not just making you know, incremental changes, you know, and that does have its own value, right, but that we need a, to take a transformational lens, right, to our systems, um, and, um, and rethink about how, you know, whether it's the Canadian healthcare system, you know, or, you know, systems within provinces or organizations are constructed, um, to better maximize, I guess, value and, and outcomes. So do you think that, you know, in this 
big moment that we are right now, I guess, in our Canadian healthcare system, looking at changing things, whether that be models of care or, or scopes of practice or things like that, that simulation has a role to play in that too? I, I sure hope so. I would I, <laughs> I would hope that, that it, it's involved. And um, again, it could have any, there's different ways it could be involved too, right? It, there, it could be the, the more computer-based simulation or, or computer modeling of how mm -hmm. a system would work in order to determine what balance of healthcare professionals or what balance of community versus acute care would optimize outcomes for a population. Um, uh, and that can be structured and modeled statistically through, through computer-based simulations um, to um, types of simulations that involve people in um, testing new clinical spaces. Like there's, there's hospitals in Canada, as they're designing new clinical spaces, the first thing they do is go to the parking garage and tape out on the floor where they're planning to build certain walls and hallways and then run simulations so that the care teams can tell them that, you know, there needs to be a door in this location, or um, we need more storage space right here so we can get to whatever equipment more readily. Um, to, to developing um, policies and, and procedures. So I would, my bias standpoint, of course, would love to see <laughs> Um, more simulation regularly embedded into these kinds of um, in this kind of improvement and, and transformational work. Yeah, well, this is your platform to 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 be wishful and and to be inspiring, right? To get people to think about this uh, this wonderful set of tools, right? That are, I guess, well within our disposal. Um, it really, I think, what I'm also hearing, right, is that it's it requires their own imagination in terms of how they use these to um, solve problems or make improvements. Yeah. One of the, the fun things about simulation is, is the way it embraces creativity. Mm -hmm. um, whether you're another example is someone, someone I know built used cardboard boxes to build models of different uh, medication dispensing units. Uh, and had several nurses try different types of units before they made a purchasing decision. Hmm. Um, so there's all kinds of opportunity for for creativity. It's a, a fun role that you have for sure. Um, and I, you know, I, I think like everything. I, well, I guess one of the things that I guess I'm inspired by what you've shared with me, and I and I appreciate you know I've led the questions you know in a way that is related to education and learning as it relates to our people, um, and that's my own bias um, for sure. But I certainly see through your examples a lot um, that reminds me of my professional side, right, about learning and development, and I liken it to when you know e-learning was first coming on the stage, and everyone thought that's great, we can use computers to do the things that we were always been doing all along. And so this rush to create uh, e-learning courses that were um, simulations of what was happening in workshops, right? So the whole e-learning 1.0 was born of just being, do the same thing that you were doing before, um, just do it online now instead. 
and then somewhere along the line, right, there's the aha, but we can do different things that we couldn't do in those workshops using this technology um, that brings new value, right, and new learning um, that is, in fact, better um, uh, in certain ways. Um, does that resonate in terms of, I guess, the way that people are looking at simulations? Have, has the simulation journey been a similar one? Yes, absolutely. The same kind of uh, adoption curve. And, and what we're learning is simulation is not the best solution. Just like e-learning, simulation is not the best solution for all educational challenges. Right? If we're working on developing very basic foundational knowledge, then simulation is generally not a good uh, or not very cost-effective way mm -hmm. of building that, that foundational declarative knowledge, uh, declarative knowledge. Um, but if we're talking about integrating uh, cognitive and psychomotor and, and interpersonal skills in a, in a complex environment, uh, then simulation is is very powerful. Um, yeah, and that the other and that Bloom's taxonomy, yeah, right? Sort of getting yeah. to those those higher order um, exactly. competencies. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the other the other part of this journey we've we've learned, and I, I think e-learning went through this too is the excitement initially is about the technology. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's often massive investments in, in the technology and purchasing, and in simulations case, it was the mannequins, only to learn that the technology, having the access to the technology itself is not sufficient to drive change and to drive learning. Um, and the, the importance of teaching teachers of, of professional development, training educators, or faculty mm -hmm. development, depending on your context, um, is is as if not more important, um, because you can have you can have somebody trained in simulation-based education who can use very creative methods to recreate uh, a simulation, recreate um, you know a, a social um, situation, um, whereas having equipment, but not those trained personnel um, doesn't enable uh, that that same kind of kind of learning. So uh, we've also come to appreciate the importance not just of technology, but the the importance of of people to plan the simulations and facilitate them and debrief them. So if you get to go on your soapbox here as we come to the end of our conversation, Tim, and you want to make a call about what's, you know, what's getting in the way of further adoption, use, embracing of, of simulation in terms of our, uh, our continued evolution and development in healthcare, what's your call to action? My call to action is, is first not to be uh, intimidated, um, whether whether it's because you think of the technology that might be in, involved or uh, the change in pedagogy or the change in the way, way we teach, uh, simulation really is uh, accessible now. Um, and the place to start is, is through developing people who know how to do simulations um, and, and that staff development. Um, once you've got that, that interest and that energy and that excitement, and you know what needs to be simulated, then you'll know if, if investments in, in certain technologies or products are, are needed or not. The other thing to realize is that many times, especially when we're talking about quality improvement simulations, you don't need a, a ton of equipment. You don't even need a dedicated space, 
A lot of mm -hmm. people are what, doing what, what we call in situ simulations, running simulations in clinical spaces. So in a bay of the emergency department or in the operating room mm -hmm. um, or in the back of an, an ambulance. Um, it, you don't necessarily need um, to invest in a lot of equipment or to invest in a space in order to enable really high quality simulation-based learning. So um, my, my soapbox is, is um, please be open to embracing it, knowing that um, technology and knowing that, that money doesn't need to be a barrier and start by, um, by finding champions within your system who, who, are, who are keen, who are interested in learning about it and learning the skills of simulation simulation-based education or simulation-based quality improvement um, and, and go from there. And maybe a good plug for Simulation Canada and all of this, Tim. I mean, you. I mean, through the the conversation we've been having here today, you've you've referenced many different studies, case examples, you know, other kinds of resources. Um, if people are interested in learning more about any of those things, about how to involve them, is there a place they can come or where to get some of that? Yeah, I mean, start at, at SimulationCanada.ca. Or, or feel free to contact us. Part of yes, part of what we do is teach people how to how to use simulation and, and that professional development part. But we work with our members to help um, help expedite that that adoption and help them plan how to uh, strategically grow their simulation work and, and incorporate it into their educational programming or into their um, patient safety and quality improvement work. Um, and that that kind of advocacy and that that supporting the adoption is really an important part of what we do. Great. Well, it sounds like you're fulfilling a really important part of our of our education and uh, improvement sort of ecosystem. So I really appreciate you uh, coming on the the show here today to to share with us uh, how all of that can be leveraged and used um, in solving some of uh, the today's problems and challenges in healthcare. And uh, yeah, I look forward to having you uh, again. Maybe we can talk more around the, how it can be used in that quality improvement sort of side of things. Thank you. Thank you, Dale. I, I appreciate that you're, you're interested and willing to do something a little that may seem a little more peripheral to, to human resources and, and give this opportunity to explore where there is indeed uh, that intersection. Super. Thanks again, Tim. My pleasure, Dale. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.